Stuart Umpleby is a professor emeritus of management at George Washington University School of Business. He has served as president of the American Society of Cybernetics and is currently an associate editor of the Journal of Cybernetics and Systems. His studies in cybernetics, systems, and management has led him to consult with the World Bank, U.S. and Canadian government agencies, as well as numerous corporate institutions throughout America, Europe, and Asia. This podcast is brought to you by the Ann Michalski Foundation. Stuart Umpleby, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate the invitation. Looking um, forward to the conversation. Yes, and for, um, we're very curious about cybernetics. And I know before and this interview, I mean, I asked a number of people, and I just I want to ask just a straightforward question. You know, what is cybernetics? Because people have uh, different interpretations. Well, it's the Greek word for governor. That's where it came from, and it was introduced into the contemporary discussion with a book by Norbert Wiener in 1948 called Cybernetics Control and Communication in Animal and Machine. This was the very early days of uh, computers. And they were looking for a theory to guide the creation of computers. And so Wiener came up with this uh, Greek word for governor because that's basically what you use a computer for is control and then in a positive sense and governing things and communication. So control and communication in animal and machine. And that book was written by Wiener while he was attending a series of conferences sponsored by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation in New York City from 46 to 53. They were all held in New York City. And there were a bunch of uh, people from many disciplines engineering, math, social science, anthropology, psychology, physiology, who were interested in the topic of the Macy Foundation conferences, which was circular causal and feedback mechanisms in biological and social systems. Now, during World War II, Wiener and others had been working on something called a radar-guided anti-aircraft gun. So you, you use a radar signal and you sense the position of an enemy plane and you use that information to point the gun where you think the plane's gonna be in the future and you keep firing it and so forth. And those, that equipment was built and installed on ships in the Pacific before the end of World War II. So it's sometimes called the duck hunter problem. And it required feedback because they started working with biologists and there was something called purpose tremor. Let's say I have a pen on my desk. I reach out, I pick up my pen. When I do that, I go directly to the pen and I pick it up without any problem. But some people have a problem. They have purpose tremor. So their hand goes back and forth like this. And that was a tip off that it's not just one command that causes them to reach for the pen but rather that it's a series of commands and that there's a coordination between the eye and the hand. And so you have a problem of control and it's a very general problem when you're driving a car, when you're managing a firm, 
uh, when you're balancing your checkbook, you're trying to get things in the right order and in the right place and so forth. So that led to this notion of what we are calling now a general theory of control and communication. Now, the way I try to explain it to people is say, why is this important? Say, well, you know about physics. Physics is a general theory of matter and energy. It's been very useful. Build airplanes, cars, all kinds of things. And then you have biology, of course, which is very useful for medicine and so forth. So what cybernetics offers is a parallel field to physics. If physics gives you a theory of matter and energy, cybernetics gives you a theory of control and communication. So it's the material domain versus the informational domain. And they're always both there. It's just that we haven't had as much scientific work being done on control and communication. It's all divided up. So you have psychology and economics, physiology, political science, anthropology. These are all separate fields. If you study engineering, as a freshman, you will study physics, chemistry, and math, calculus, and so forth. If you study the social sciences, you go directly into your major field, psychology, economics, political science, and so forth. And you may take some other courses in other fields, but the point is there is no common foundation for the social sciences as there is for the physical and biological sciences. So cybernetics says we'll create it. And that's what cybernetics is. It's the common foundation for the biological and social and engineering sciences that are concerned with control and communication. So what we do is we formulate principles very similar to Newton's laws in physics and so forth. But there is great interest in the arts, in cybernetics. Uh, it's a very multidisciplinary, <clears throat> transdisciplinary field. Transdisciplinary means it's, it's more general, it stretches across all fields. And so you have special cases in all these other fields like psychology and economics and so forth. That is, that was a, there's something recently that I saw when you were talking about the arts and the cybernetics role in being creative. I saw that Sophia the robot, I guess that's like the celebrity of, of artificial intelligence or machine learning. I saw that she had created her own original piece of art and it had sold for uh, a certain amount of money. How far off do you think people are to seeing sort of the, an uh, artificial intelligence's input into the creative arts? Well, I, I, it's not a subject I've given a lot of thought to. I can tell you somebody who has, Paul Pangaro, I, he's been involved with the arts and cybernetics for many years. I studied with Heinz von Forster at the University of Illinois. He's a Viennese physicist. And his friend, Herbert Brunn, was a composer and musician. And he had a group of students around him and they've been interested in the art and art, musical arts mostly. Paul was more into sculpture and other things. But I personally haven't been that closely associated with the arts. I enjoy going to art galleries and so forth. But I started off in engineering and then I went into the social sciences 
And then my PhD was in communications, which was a general field that encompassed cybernetics. So I've always been a social scientist. And lately I've been more interested in the philosophy of science and tried to expand our conception of science such that it includes control and communication in addition to matter and energy processes. It's, there's a field within the sciences called the unification of science or the unity of science. And the way I think of it is it's sort of puzzle solving. You, if you assembled a jigsaw puzzle, you know, you wanna fit the pieces together. Well, in a university has a set of disciplines, how do they all fit together? And there are a number of ways you can think about that. You can start off with physics at the atomic level and go on up to the social sciences, nation states and so forth. And that's one way of fitting the disciplines together, but there are common methods that can be shared. And so that's another part of what I'm interested in is the unity of science or the unification of science, finding general principles. That's what general systems theory is about. For example, evolution. Evolution started, I guess, with Darwin, but we often talk about the evolution of industrial systems. We talk about the evolution of medical practice. All kinds of things evolve in the world because they're changing and developing. So evolution is one idea that stretches across many fields. Another idea is management. And with management, you have two elements. You have the regulator and the system being regulated. And there's a general principle called the law of requisite variety. And what that says is if you have a certain amount of variety in what you're trying to control, your regulator has to have at least that much variety or it's not gonna be able to control it. Consider the difference between an automobile and an airplane. In an automobile, you're working on a two-dimensional surface. So you have to see forward and backward and to the side. With an airplane, you're three dimensions. And so you have to be aware of where you are in terms of above the ground and so forth. So an, an automatic pilot for an airplane has to be more complicated than an automatic pilot that'll drive a truck down a highway. And that's just one illustration of the law of requisite variety, which is constantly being violated by the way the government operates. For example, the Internal Revenue Service. If you wanna collect taxes, you're gonna to have to occasionally audit your taxpayers. So they will have an incentive to pay their taxes. If you cut back on your auditors, you are going to miss some people and you won't end up getting as much in the way of tax revenue as if you had more tax collectors. But if you have too many tax collectors, it becomes very inefficient. And also, let's say if you decide to cut back on meat inspectors, you can expect to have an increase in uh, food poisoning. So an awful lot of government is matching the task with the management capability to accomplish the task. That's called the law of requisite variety. And it came from Ross Ashby. And it's virtually unknown within the management field even though it was published in book form in 1952. And so this is an interesting case. Why is this fundamental principle of management virtually unknown 
on university campuses and in management textbooks? Well, because they haven't studied cybernetics. <laughs> it's any university that has a program in cybernetics which teaches the law of requisite variety because that's fundamental. It's like F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. But if you haven't studied that, then you don't know it. So cybernetics is a neglected field. And that's what we're working on, trying to arouse people's interest and curiosity in it. And robotics is one of the things that is generating a lot of interest. Yeah. So Justin here, Stuart, my background is very interesting. The, the journey you've talked about, it's, I'm originally an engineer and worked on lots of control systems and from chips all the way up to software and did my management consulting and did, I'm working, you know, strategy at the moment with central banks and things like that. But it's funny that the communication bit is the bit that I've always excelled or enjoyed most. And I've never, I had to look up this week what cybernetics actually meant and read up a little bit about that because I've organically kind of developed skills and seen where these gaps are in this kind of meta discipline you're talking about. I never had anybody actually put a name on it. And it's interesting, you know, even in terms of the prevalence or they're coming to the fore of EQ, I think they call it. But I think that emotional quotient of to complement IQ is what's, you know, me as a management consultant, you know, the, the, you have this old adage of give, give a management consultant a watch and he'll tell you the time, right? And it's kind of breaking down silos. It's looking at getting just people to talk to each other and helping break down those communication barriers and getting people on the same page, formulating and structuring their thoughts and becoming, you know, more, I guess, systematic in their thinking. Your instance is very, very true because work we were recently doing around supervising the financial sector and what caused the great global financial crisis. A lot of that was actually down to looking at the wrong things and not looking at them in a systematic way, pulling inspectors out and kind of people who appear to be doing well, assume making assumptions which were not validated. How, how do you how do you think about controlling the controller, I guess, or where do you, where do you set the boundaries or if, if things are happening? And I'm, I'm thinking as well, particularly in the social and the social you know, revolution, social communication revolution, which is happening right now. How do you, how do you make sure you get the, the benefits, but actually how do you recognize what can be some of the negatives or the destructive trends that, that accompany those? Well, that's a wonderful question. And we've been living through it with the invention of social media recently. There was, uh, there was an earlier interest in new technology when we had radio and TV. And one result of that was the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and, and so forth, who, because they could address a mass audience. Now we're having another wave with social media, which is sort of a a mass communication system with built-in feedback. And the problem there is the algorithms, the procedures that are built into the software, send people more of what they have already clicked on. So if you click on some right-wing thing or left-wing thing, the computer will send you more of that. And the reason it does that is so that you will be interested in what's there and you will spend more time watching it. And if you spend more time on that platform, that's good because then they can send you more advertisements and the advertisements are what pay for it. 
And, um, and there's even a money-making thing called, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, called AdSense. Google does this. People who make recipes or tell you how to take care of your pet create a website and people go to it and then they load up the website with books and and so forth. And um, so some of these people who are creating this misinformation are actually making earning a living because they the more outrageous the comments, the more people click on it. So the more they can charge for their advertising revenue. Now that's a positive feedback loop that I don't think was recognized by people early on, certainly not by the public. No doubt the people who saw the advertising revenue were coming rolling in, saw that something interesting was happening. But that's a good example of, I think what you're talking about is you change the, the social ecosystem in some way, and then you're likely to get consequences you didn't anticipate, some of them unpleasant. To, to that then, are there, again, I'm reading at the moment, Mark Carney's new book on value and turning, you know, on donut economics as well by Kate Raworth, where they're trying to turn our measures of success, I guess, into a broader, a broader appreciation, which just doesn't come down to dollars and cents, I guess, which is either social capital or it's in terms of quality of life. I mean... Is, is, a, is a measures of success, metrics, is, is that something that's too specific? Is it, is it just tied to a particular application? Or when you're defining the principles and I guess the functionality, are there, is there a way to tie in some value system or some sort of measures that are not specific, you know, which can actually focus the mind into, into actually trying to, trying to mine a little bit more, what are the positives? Oh, yeah. Well, there are always measures. And if you're designing machines, you always want to have measures and monitoring and stuff like that. And uh, then you can adjust the machine's behavior depending upon what the measures give you, like how long people are watching, what are they clicking on and so forth. So, yeah, measures and and feedback are, are essentially all about control. That's what cybernetics is all about. I think one thing that's forefront many of our minds, and that's the um, environmental crises, and, and also the governance. So there's actually been a lot of things. Actually, there's the pandemic. There's so many things where we need better systems. We have systems failure, and we need systemic change. But just even just focusing just on the environmental crises and food uh, scarcity or water security and these things, how can the foundation of cybernetics be applied to that? Or what if just how do you, so you must see systems you know that are bad. And in place and think if only this could be applied to it or maybe you know interesting solutions yeah well an awful lot of people are thinking about it exactly these issues now and i would say that what cybernetics contributes is a general theory people who build machines know how to build their machines whether it's television sets or automobiles and doctors know how to perform operations and so forth And there's information that's being used in all of those activities. And so cybernetics gives you a general theory of how information is used, positive feedback, negative feedback, et cetera. And cybernetics also leads to a theory of adaptation, both learning and then adaptation. And there's been writing about understanding as a biological process. And one of the newer ideas is reflexivity. 
And that's where you, you, you're aware of your actions and you, you're taking actions and you're modifying your actions. And we all do this all the time anyway, but we didn't have a theory of it before. So that's the way the field has progressed. It's gone from simple feedback loops to learning, adaptation, understanding, now reflexivity. And one of the things that's, that I found quite interesting is that the people who build robots and, and do artificial intelligence have no interest in cybernetics. <laughs> because now I found that very odd because I started off studying physics. You know, the first thing you do is study the basic principles and then you specialize in mechanical, electrical, aeronautical, civil engineering. Engineers don't work that though. They just, they use metaphors like electricity flows in a wire the way water flows in a pipe. And you have memory, which is like books in a library. They always go back to physical metaphors. They don't try to invent a, a, a unique set of ideas that are specific to control and communication. But That's the difference between a scientist and an engineer, surely. I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm an engineer through and through, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, is, I mean, they're, they're building machines. There's no, <laughs> but as an academics, I look for the general principles. So building on one of Mia's points there around the pandemic specifically, and, and the, the earlier point we had around social media and misinformation, et cetera, it seems there's a, there's a big movement, as you, you'll be aware, anti-vaxxers and even COVID deniers and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, has cybernetics got an application to support medicine and, you know, healthcare professionals in doing a better job of communicating or addressing this misinformation and communication? You know, things like your DNA is going to change if you take a vaccine, just, you know, the, the nonsensical theories that are put out there and not refuted yeah. seem to be, you know, growing by the day. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely something that concerns me. And uh, I don't think cybernetics has anything to offer beyond just common sense. You know, trust people who have an education and experience in your particular field and, and don't trust nonsense and, and, and try to figure out who, who is trying to tell the truth and who is making up stories to get people to click on their messages because they're both of those people are out there and if you spend your time clicking on surprising results you can wander off into never never land and that's dangerous to society and i guess that's that that's the point then which is trust and transparency in science and uh, as me is doing here you know the promotion of education and and broader thinking and, you know, connecting people with new ideas, which are science-based or, you know, are creative in their, in their thinking or their approach, but are not fantastical, I guess. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on what you had meant by preferring methods over theories, because I know briefly you had talked about the fact that science really focuses on theories and val values them as much as the methods themselves, but almost in a sense that the method can can be more broadly applied. Cybernetics has gone through something called second order cybernetics, and uh, meaning first order cybernetics came first. And that was mostly 
electrical engineering, computers, thermostats, automatic assembly lines, engineering applications. But the people who were at the Macy Foundation conferences, remember the title of the conferences was Circular Causal and Feedback Mechanisms in Biological and Social Systems. So they looked for how biologicals and social systems work. And then they tried to design electronic and mechanical machinery that would embody the same principles. Okay, so if you've been doing first order cybernetics for some years, you someday come to the question, well, how does the human brain work? So you loop the ideas back to understanding cognition. And that's what the people at the Macy Foundation conferences were interested in. We wanna understand the brain, we wanna understand stand cognition. And that led to second order cybernetics. In other words, it's one thing if you have a regulator and a system being regulated, like driving a car, but if you're managing a firm where you have thinking participants, then it's a more complicated thing. You have game theory issues, you have communication issues. How do I persuade them? How do they think that I'm telling the truth? All of those kinds of issues that uh, you don't have if you're working with a machine. So it's the difference between inanimate objects and thinking participants. And that led people thinking, well, then there's not only second order cybernetics, but there's second order science. And that idea hasn't caught on at all yet, <laughs> but it's very close. Now, the notion about theories and methods is related to this distinction between inanimate objects and, and observers. If you acknowledge that the role of the observer is, pre is present and important, then you wanna focus some attention on it. You don't wanna just assume it away, which is the way science worked for a very long time. The whole idea was to be objective, to eliminate the observer, to disregard the observer, to design controlled experiments where you have an experimental group and a control group so you could eliminate the observer effects. That was the foundations of science and it's worked beautifully. But when you're managing a firm or a country, it's not so easy to neglect things like the observer or the actor. So the nice thing about methods as an approach to creating a literature on a phenomenon is that the method says do this, 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 and this, like a recipe. And that explicitly acknowledges that somebody's got to do something. The observer has to do something. And how do you find out about something? Well, you know, you put this chemical in a flask and you add another chemical and it fizzes or it doesn't fizz, but you have a procedure you have to execute. So methods explicitly mention what the observer's role is, which we had previously conveniently assumed away. So that's the fundamental thing underlying the difference between theories and methods is, are you including the observer in your study of the subject? That, that's really interesting you say that because, I mean, especially in the realm of 
teaching journalism nowadays. I mean, do you ever pull specifically from your theories on cybernetics and do you try to emulate them in a way? Because I feel like a lot of them can be properly attributed to other fields, like even just simple journalism. Oh, oh yeah. Well, our, our conferences include people from all the disciplines that arts, music, physics, chemistry, biology, social science, political science, our, our conferences are wonderful because they're highly interdisciplinary. Now, Heinz von Forster, this physicist that I studied with, had something to say about journalism. And I think, what, what is it there? Uh, tell it like it is. And he said, no, that's not right. He says, it is the way you tell it. And that focuses uh, the attention on the responsibility of the journalist. Because if you say it one way and people believe it, you have just intervened in the system. If you say it a different way and people believe that, you've altered the system in another direction. That's why social media is so important. I mean, they say that they're, that this is alt news. Well, if people believe it, you're changing the system. So you have a responsibility to try to tell the truth and if you're making it up, you know, like fiction and so forth, that's fine. Well, let people know that that's what you're doing. Because if you present yourself as telling the truth, and in fact, you're just saying things that aren't true, you're creating noise in the social system. I think that that's why I, I'm not... I would never call myself a journalist, although this touches on journalism, but I love the conversation. I didn't even like that term interview, but conversation is what you speak for yourself. You share your thoughts and I don't have to intervene too much. Of course, there's a little bit of a presentation, but it's not my point of view. Now I can make an artwork later inspired by that, or Brett can come in and do an editorial, but it's quite clearly not, we're not telling others what you're saying. You speak for yourself. I think that that's really important. That's a very important uh, trend that's happening now. And there's a theory, it's called conversation theory, which is part of cybernetics. There's a fellow named George Kelly uh, who influenced this a psychologist and then Gordon Pask can really sort of formulated conversation theory. What Gordon Pask was interested in was in designing teaching machines. Now, just to to sort of indicate different strategies in cybernetics. B.F. Skinner created the notion of a teaching machine where you would present some information, and then you would ask the student a question. And if they answered correctly, then you'd go on to the next lesson and you'd present it and then you'd ask a question and so forth. So you had immediate feedback and that was very useful. But Pask's notion was different because you see in Skinner's notion, the teaching machine just presented the information and then evaluated the answer. But what Pass said is, well, okay, if I'm teaching a student, the student's coming in with his or her own ideas. What are those ideas? And can I build on those ideas? How do I fit those ideas together with my ideas? And how do I lead the student in a particular direction? So his notion of conversation theory was that the machine would learn the ideas in the mind of the student and would design a strategy that would build upon those ideas. 
Now it's a completely different approach to a teaching machine, but it's a cybernetics approach to a teaching machine. One of the least qualified things I could do is try to explain cybernetics. Anything outside of the realm of science fiction, that'd be anything on the subject that is based in actual facts, are entirely alien to me. Scrolling through Professor Impleby's articles and topics of discussion over the years, I was surprised to see that the umbrella of cybernetics doesn't just cover a wide range of applications and potential impacts. The topic itself is made up of a surprising variety of contributions. In this case, what struck me was Umpleby's interest in effective management systems, as well as the value of educating with methods rather than theories. Cybernetics can be tricky to define for those like myself who are unfamiliar, but by the way that Stewart described, it seems appropriately vague. When researching for this interview, reading through the articles by Stewart that I could barely grasp, it was the first time since finals that I became ridden with an anxiety which I was studying the wrong materials for a test. But it was never a rabbit hole that led to nowhere. His discussion on sociology, management structures, efficient learning methods, all inevitably led back to the idea of improving. Improving the systems we teach with, communicate with, even problem solve. In the end, it's apparent that a subject with so much to offer deserves acknowledgement and a more continuous discussion. It's a field of study which I'm honored to be briefly educated in by someone like Umbleby. But outside of science fiction, you rarely find platforms that can introduce a new audience to even the simplest cybernetic concepts. To some degree, that disappoints me. For a field with so many potential benefits, it is unfortunately plagued with fears of robotic workforces leading to unemployment and AI surveillance programs. For this reason, I find it invaluable to be refreshed from time to time on the benefits of researching improved educational methods as well as competent systems for management, communication, transportation, etc., etc. It was difficult for me not to project my own interests onto the benefits of cybernetics. But there's a reason why the audiences that Stewart addresses are comprised of such an eclectic group of professions. It's a subject that has the rare potential of broadly impacting the future of all sorts of occupations and even art forms. Yeah, it's, I'm really interested in all the different new models of education, I guess they call it student-centered learning. Or Tell us a little bit about, you were talking about some of the conferences. You were director of the research program in social and organizational um, learning at George Washington University. It just describe a little bit that program. And I know that you also under that, I think you're speaking with the conferences or you're bringing over uh, a lot of colleagues from the, the Soviet Union Europe. Well, that program was just something that I was doing at GW on campus. We have something called a university seminar, and, and that's it brings together people from on campus, faculty and students, and people from around the city. And the usual thing is that you have a meeting once a month, and then you go out to lunch after the meeting, and that conversation goes on and you get to know people and exchange ideas and so on. We also had conferences and mostly we organized conferences associated with the American Society for Cybernetics because I'd been president of that and I knew the people in it. 
So we hosted their conference on campus several times. And we also hosted visiting scholars under the Fulbright program and so forth. So we had a number of activities, but they were mostly lectures, conferences, panel discussions at conferences. And it was always about cybernetics or systems, so forth. And what do you learn from the, the different approaches as you host people from different parts of the world? And how did you engage and build upon your approaches? Okay, well, one of the things that I have become interested in over time is something called group process methods for decision-making. Participatory strategic planning is one example. And I discovered this approach to social activity soon after arriving at Washington from University of Illinois. And I was very impressed with it. And so I wanted to learn more about it. And I went to some conferences where they were using these methods in poor communities. And I thought the methods were very good. So I started using them with the American Society for Cybernetics. People got very excited about it. This is great. You know, we're, we're, we're interacting more with one another. And so I, that's part of what I mean when I talk about second order cybernetics or second order science. It's very much more participative than sort of just lecturing and then asking some questions and so forth. You try to pull people's ideas together in a sequence of, by asking a sequence of questions, like what's your vision for the future? And everybody writes down on cards. You stick them up on the board. Then you cluster the cards on the board. And then you talk about that vision of the future. And then you say, okay, if that's our vision of the future, why don't we already have it? But that's what we're all thinking about. So what are the obstacles? So then you write down, you know, your notion of obstacles. Everybody writes down some obstacles. You put it up on the board, you cluster them, and then you have a conversation about it. Then you come, many times you go back and come back the next day or in the afternoon, you say, okay, if those are the obstacles, what are some strategies that would remove the obstacles to achieving the vision? You write down a sheet of paper and you post them up on the door and you discuss those. The next time around you say, okay, if that's all, those are our strategies, what tactics do we need to t take to implement those strategies? And you do the same thing, write it down on a piece of paper. So and then the last one is what specific actions need to be done? Who does what, when, where, and how in order to implement the tactics? And you write all this up and you have a report and then you try to implement those ideas over the next months or so. And then say after six months, you come back and say, okay, what did we say we were gonna do? And you reread the report. What did we actually do? What was easier than we thought? What was more difficult than we thought? And then you go through the whole thing all over again. And, and well, and what did we learn you know, about what was easy and what was difficult? And then you go through it again. And you do this periodically every six months or every year, you go through one of these conversations. It's a more structured conversation than the usual strategic planning activity, but it's a way of doing strategic planning. And that's the way you create a learning organization because your people are conver con conversing with one another and they're learning and they're influencing one another and they're changing their behavior and so forth. And so that's one of the things that I've been working on. Through that lens of 
decision-making. I've been reading a couple of your older articles. Sorry to keep bringing, bringing older stuff up, but especially for, for someone of my age, I was incredibly interested by the stuff you were writing about Y2K and some of the articles before that and after that. One of the things that, one of the articles before the year 2000 that you had written talked a lot about like the cognitive dissonance and sort of the conflating realities that people had about what might potentially happen. I was wondering, uh, how did your ideas on like that whole group decision-making change sort of from before and after that whole event? The main thing about Y2K was a lot of people were predicting doom and gloom. And it turned out that the really bad things didn't happen. Or at least they were not, they happened, but they were not catastrophic. For example, my campus, they had to change the telephone system, <laughs> tear out the old one and put in a new one. I mean, that was not cheap. And the, the president of AT&T once said, I gave my staff a budget and they exceeded it, a, an unlimited budget, and they exceeded it. <laughs> Because I mean, with a telephone system, you have to do two things. First, you have to make connections so people can talk to one another, and then you have to build them. Otherwise you got no revenue coming in to buy new equipment and so forth. It's, that's with everything, by the way. It's like with a university, you have to teach and then you have to monitor what the students have learned. So you have those two activities. So it was a surprise to me that following all the, the catastrophes, because the, the experience of studying Y2K for me was everybody seemed to be coming up with a new catastrophe that nobody had thought about before. I mean, the, the basic idea was just, you, you have to have more than two digits to, to describe the year and otherwise your, your computations are off. But then you have machinery that's programmable and machinery where the software is built into the hardware and so forth. And, uh, and a lot of people didn't understand this, particularly in developing countries and so forth. They said, well, if the Y2K bug shows up, we'll use an in insecticide on it. <laughs> people actually said that. And then the question was, okay, where are the greatest problems gonna be? Are they gonna be in the highly technological societies like the US and Europe? where they have a lot of equipment that can go wrong, or will they occur in the less developed countries where they don't have much in the way of high-tech equipment? And one of the places they were betting on was Italy, <laughs> because Italy has a reputation as not having a terribly effective government. And I think Italy was really slow in becoming aware of the problem like six months before. They said, what is this thing you're talking about? So then when Y2K happened and not much happened, I went to a conference out in California where, where the Y2K managers of several countries came together to talk about their experience. And they said, well, well one, of the, one of the issues was, should we evacuate American personnel from overseas? Okay, so if you think, let's take Italy as an example, that the water supply may not work, the hospitals may not work, lots of things may not work. You don't want your family there if 
you know, if there's a medical emergency or something. So do you evacuate? Do you bring them home to the United States where we think we have a better grip on things? And they decided, no, we didn't need to evacuate them. And so then the question was, because the, the military did this, you know, they did a study there and they used to do, take Italy as an example. You have some auto assembly plant in Italy and you're in its US owned Opal say, and uh, you're concerned about the water supply, the medical equipment, the, su the, the supply chain. So, and you play golf with the executives of these other things. And so over golf, you say, you know, how are you doing with Y2K? And he says, Y2 what? And so then the American says to the Italian, let me send my technical guy to talk to your technical guy. And they did that. And this was happening around the world that the technical people would get together and make sure the equipment was fixed because they depended on it too. You know, these, all these foreign businesses, they wanted things to work. And even before the country, in this case, Italy, had a Y2K program, there was a great deal of activity that was going on among the business corporations, making sure the equipment worked. And that's basically why there wasn't that much of an effect. And whereas some of you like me, who's an academic who looks at, okay, what's the national report say? They say, well, there is no national report. They don't know anything about it. So people are concerned, <laughs> but then there's all this informal activity that was going on and fixing things. So to me, that was, I had, once I saw it, I said, well, no, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. I mean, people do talk about things that are important, you know, why? But it wasn't in the official reporting on the Y2K phenomenon that wasn't discussed until very near the end of the time period. And I found that educational. It seems like, well, I think that most people agree we're living through, it's not a, a Y2K moment, but it's a crucial decade. I mean, and going forward, it's there's so many different systems. It's not just the y, a similar thing of Y2K, all these different systems have to be improved. And so I guess in closing, as you uh, think about the future, I very much like this, uh, the organizational learning model where you ask people what their vision, their strategy, what are the obstacles, what are the tactics that they can implement? So on a map, I know it's a big question, but on a, a wider, as you think about the future, about the kind of world we want and what kind of world are we living for the next generation? You know, what is your vision? Uh, what do you think are important things for young people to uh, know, preserve and remember? And you know what, yeah, how, would, how can we unite about creating a better tomorrow? Well, my approach to that is to expand science. And, and that is, I think science is a very good way of knowing. It's a good way of developing knowledge, communicating knowledge. It's made life much more comfortable in terms of heating and air conditioning. And we're making progress with medical care. And we're learning more about the environment and how we're messing up the environment and so how to not mess up the environment so bad. So I think science is a very useful way of approaching the future and working on the future by advancing 
science. And so that's what I've devoted my life to, is to try to get the different fields to communicate more with one another, to develop more general theories so they can communicate together better. And system theory and cybernetics do that. We don't teach that in universities in the United States to any significant degree, but it does go on. There are more programs in Europe than elsewhere. And, and I can tell you that the reason for that, which I have, this has been one of my great discoveries in working on cybernetics over the years. And that is I would go to a conference in Europe and there'd be lots of references to philosophers, you know, Kant, Locke, Hegel, so forth. And I said, okay, who are these guys? <laughs> and so I found myself studying the history of philosophy. And this, and this sort of built up over time, you know, every time I'd go to a, a conference in Europe, there'd be more references to philosophers that I didn't know who these guys were. And so I started reading up on it and so forth. This is really interesting. So finally, not too long ago, we ended up with a med new medical researcher from Switzerland. Took him out to lunch. He said, welcome to the campus. I said, I have a question for you. <laughs> Why do Europeans talk so much about philosophy in their conferences? And I guess nobody asked him that question. He says, well, we study philosophy for two years in high school. So these European students arrive at the university with a conception of the tree of knowledge in their minds, where the tree of knowledge is the history of philosophy. Each branch is a different philosopher and you have clusters, you know, on the different branches and so forth. So when Europeans are talking about a multidisciplinary problem. They mentioned Kant or Hegel or uh, Locke or something like that. And everybody knows what they're talking about, except the Americans, because they haven't studied those people. We study the sciences, but we don't study the philosophies out of which the sciences grew. Now, to me, this is a big oversight. I mean, if you listen to CEOs and foundation executives, they will say, what we need is more cross-disciplinary communication. We need more communication among the different fields because you know, things are very complicated trying to understand the environment. You need meteorologists and geologists and all manner of different disciplines. And these people have to talk to each other. And the Europeans do it through an understanding of the history of philosophy. But Americans have decided that philosophy is one of the humanities. It's not related to the sciences and it's not relevant and we don't need it. It's not practical. So in recent years, the National Science Foundation has spent mucho bucks. I mean, really a lot of money promoting what they call STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, because that's where you get a job. You get a job, you know, working on building equipment or doing research on the environment or so forth. But they're missing philosophy. They're missing the connections and they don't know that they're missing it. Now, 
I know that they don't know they're missing this because I've been to meetings. So they, the National Academy of Sciences meets in Washington, DC, where I used to live before I moved out to the country because of COVID. And they, they had done a decadal study. This means every 10 years, the National Academy of Sciences does a decadal study on some big project. Like, because we have big projects like particle accelerators, like the one in Europe, or putting a telescope up in orbit. These are big, expensive projects. So the people who fund science want to know, well, what, what do the scientists think they're going to be working on in the next 10 years? And let's fund that now so that the equipment will be available. So that's why we were doing decadal studies initially. But then lately, there was terrorism, right? And the folks who work on terrorism, trying to combat it in the United States, are the intelligence community. Okay, and they don't know what to do about terrorism any more than anybody else does. But they said, well, let's ask the social scientists. Okay, what can they tell us about how to anticipate terrorist activity before, it, before they knock down a building and so forth? So they decided to do a decadal study of the social sciences, the first in history. You know, all these other studies, decadal studies were about weather and telescopes and cosmology and, and other things. This was the first one of the social sciences. So I went to that just to listen. What are these guys talking about? And uh, it was very interesting. And after that, they did one on what they call branches from the same tree. That's a quote from Einstein, that all these different disciplines are branches from the same tree. And they wanted to have an overview of that. They wanted to create university programs that would teach students how to deal with multiple branches from the tree. Wonderful idea. This is right up the line of systems and cybernetics. So, so I went to these things. And uh, what they had done was they just looked around at various universities. And if somebody had a good program that would bring together social scientists and humanities people, it was the arts, humanities, and their impact on the, on the STEM disciplines. They would identify these programs that did this unusual thing. And they would write that up. And that's what their report consisted of, was write-ups of a few programs that they had found around the United States where people had done that. So I go to the presentation of the final report and I raised my hand and I said, this is wonderful. I'm really glad to see that you guys are doing this. You found some very interesting things. However, it seems to me there may be a shortcut. And that is maybe you could do the same thing the Europeans do, which is teach the history of philosophy in high school. Well, that was a total non-starter. And then think about it for a moment. Who's gonna teach those courses? We don't have anybody studying philosophy. And all the philosophy departments are under pressure because they wanna use that slot in the curriculum to teach more STEM courses, okay? This, we have a history of doing this. If, if you remember Sputnik, 57, 58, the Soviets put up uh, a beeping satellite going around, it was Sputnik, and it led to a huge increase in funding of the physical sciences 
And uh, so all across the United States, and because this was the Cold War, okay, we're, we're talking nuclear weapons now, right? If the Soviets can put a, a satellite in orbit, they can put a bomb in orbit and it can come down any place you tell it to come down. So we have to compete. And that's the way we did by developing the physical and biological sciences, which is great. I got no objection to that. But that's also the way we're doing now with promoting STEM education. We, and we, this is the interesting thing. The National Academy of Sciences don't know that they have excluded philosophy, which is the foundation of the way the Europeans communicate across disciplines. The Americans just, well, take a course. You, you wanna take a course in psychology or economics, if you're an engineer or you know, study literature, French literature, medieval literature, something like that, learn the humanities. But it's, it's not the same thing as having a tree of knowledge in your mind where you can move from one branch to another. That idea is not there in the United States, or it wasn't back when I asked the question. I don't know how many people have picked up on it. I haven't noticed anything going on about it. But I think there's a, a major problem in the United States relative to Europe, because we have this philosophy as pragmatism, which is, you know, try it. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, try something else. That's a great idea. That's a really wonderful idea. But the history of philosophy has developed conceptions of government, conceptions of ethics, conceptions of social relationships that are the foundations of the social sciences. Like Adam Smith invented economics. Do you know what he taught at the University of Edinburgh? Moral philosophy. He was teaching ethics. And that led to, you know, well, what sort of social arrangements, you know, will produce the best ethical outcome and so forth. So we don't know in, in the United States that the scientific disciplines are based upon fields of philosophy. We don't go back that far. We may go back to Adam Smith, but we don't go back before Adam Smith. <clears throat> so, well, that's... As you can see, this is one of my frustrations. <laughs> well, I, th I think that it's so true. And so we want to thank you for all that you've done for helping us, you know, help encourage uh, communication between disciplines because, and so often you can find that something that you're having difficulty within your own discipline, it might be solved by another discipline. But if you don't know and you can't communicate with it and you just, you have no way of building upon those discoveries and developments and lineage. So I, it, it's really important. And I think that we can uh, all say that we've learned something through this conversation and we're excited to, to learn more and do more interviews around cybernetics and the way it can help us improve our our, our current systems, you know. So thank you, uh, Stuart Umpleby, for bringing us behind the curtain of cybernetics and your important contribution to our understanding of systems and how the world works, that we might design a better future. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, Brett Young, and Justin Hayes. 
Associate producer is Brett Young. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio.
One of the least qualified things I could do is discuss cybernetics. Anything outside of the realm of science fiction, that'd be anything on the subject that is based in actual facts, are entirely alien to me. But scrolling down Professor Umpleby's articles, topics of discussions all over the years, I was surprised to see that the umbrella of cybernetics doesn't just cover a wide variety of applications and impacts. The topic itself is made up of a surprising variety of contributions. In this case, Umpubi's interest in effective management systems, as well as the value of educating with methods rather than theories. Cybernetics can be tricky to define for those like myself who are unfamiliar. But by the way Stuart described, it seems appropriately vague. When I was researching for this interview, reading through the articles that I could barely understand, it was the first time since finals in college that I became ridden with an anxiety that I was studying the wrong materials for a test. But it wasn't really a rabbit hole that led to nowhere. It wasn't really ever a rabbit hole that led to nowhere. His discussions on sociology, management structures, efficient learning methods, all inevitably led all inevitably led back to the idea of improving. Improving the systems with which we teach, communicate with, even problem solve. In the end, it's apparent that... In the end, it's apparent that a subject with so much to offer deserves acknowledgement and a bit more of a continuous discussion. It's a field that I'm honored to be briefly educated by, it's a field of study which I'm honored to be briefly educated on by someone like Umpubi. But outside of science fiction, you rarely find platforms that can introduce a new audience to even the most simplest concepts of cybernetics. To some degree, that disappoints me. For a field with so many potential benefits, it's unfortunate that it's draped in a pop culture facade of impending dystopian futures. Fears of robotic workforces leading to unemployment and massive AI surveillance plaguing most conversations of topic. It's for this reason that I find it invaluable to be refreshed from time to time on the benefits of researching improved educational methods as well as competent systems for management, communication, transportation, etc., etc. As we move on to the second half of Umpuli's interview, it was difficult for me not to project my own interests onto the benefits of cybernetics, though I would encourage you to do the same. It is, as he described, almost a universal subject.